0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure and honor to welcome Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist, a lecturer, a scientist. He has been practicing nuclear physics for 14 years as a professional. He was employed by GE, GM Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas, working in highly advanced, highly classified and then canceled programs such as nuclear aircraft, fission, and fusion rockets, and also the impacts of nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. He has been researching UFOs for 50 years, the science of UFOs. He is also the author of Flying Saucers and Science, A Scientist Investigates the Mysteries of UFOs. He's the co-author of a book called Captured, And he is also the author, along with Kathleen Marden, of a new book that's out called Science Was Wrong. He has many DVDs and books that can be purchased, and you should go to StantonFriedman.com for that. It is my great honor to welcome one of the fathers of the scientific side of ufology, Stanton Friedman, to its rainmaking time. Good morning.
1: Well, glad to be on. I'm glad you didn't call me the great-grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> I have a great-grandson,
0: <laughs> Well, I think that, firstly, when somebody is hosting a piece on this subject, they first should come forward and share their bias. So before we begin with you and questions and dialogues with you, I want to say my bias as the host. Okay. And my bias is this. I am receptive to the possibility and the facts that we are not alone, that there has been another race of people or aliens or extraterrestrials, whatever you want to call them, that has predated humanity. I am open to the fact that witness testimonies for over 50 years and beyond have been given for people all over the world in every country of the world that have seen some type of craft that is not technology that we know about. I accept that there are classifications for information secrecy relative to the National Security Agency, not only in the United States of America, but in other countries of the world. And I accept the fact and the possibility that something this large has a very huge infrastructure protocol for being kept quiet for over 50 years. So I accept that. I've also had family members who have witnessed craft in Palm Springs and Palm Desert, California. And so I know how serious and conservative they are. And I know that them and their children would not be making up these stories. So with that said, I want to say that I read your book, Flying Saucers and Science, A Scientist Investigates the Mysteries of UFOs, and I definitely could feel that you have gone through a lot in 50 years to steward the scientific side of this and to deal with it scientifically. And so the first thing I wanted to do is say thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) The second thing I wanted to do is contextualize this whole realm. Talk a little bit about classified documents, need-to-know, and clearances so that the audience is familiar that you're on the inside of this and you understand how this works.
1: Yeah, you know, it's one of the, uh, the myths. Uh, uh, there are many myths about national security and access to highly classified information. Uh, one of them, for example, is that anybody with, say, a secret clearance has authority to see anything that's classified secret. That is not true. There two requirements for access to information that's classified. One is an appropriate clearance, and two is a need to know. And, uh, for example, when I was working on nuclear airplanes, uh, on radiation shielding, there were classified reports being done by Admiral Rickover's people on radiation shielding for nuclear submarines, and I wanted to gain access. There's a classified abstract journal, and so I saw these, and, oh, it's just what I need to know. Well, I couldn't get access. I had the right clearance, but I didn't have a need to know. Uh, Secondly, there is is strata, if you will. There's data that's uh, confidential, data that's secret, data that's top secret, and then there's top secret code word, Umbra, Ultra, Magic, uh, stuff like that. And the number of people with access to the top secret code word stuff can be very small, as few as a half a dozen sometimes. And so one of the major ways that the government keeps things covered up is to take advantage of the egos in Washington, people who say, well, if that were true, I would know about it because I have a high-level clearance and I'm on the inside. And that simply isn't true. You have the simple example of uh, Vice President Harry Truman not knowing anything about the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear weapons. Okay, he becomes president. Do they tell him? No. The only time he got told was 13 days after President Roosevelt died in April of 45, And he had to make, Truman had to make the decisions about dropping the atomic bomb. He had known nothing about it prior to that. Uh, so that's one of a zillion different examples. But need to know is primary. And one of the things that we have to recognize that in today's world, uh, presidents may not have a need to know for all kinds of things because they deal with the press. They're out in public. They may inadvertently say something. There's another thing. Uh, you know, I've written a book about the Majestic 12 documents and stuff. Yes. I get people telling me, well, surely those guys, the dozen, 13 actually named people involved, would have told their wives. That's absolute nonsense. You don't tell your wife because you don't want – there's no way you can constrain what she says to other people when she doesn't know the rules of the game. And she doesn't know where a piece of information from here might help somebody who knows something from there. And so it is not easy to gain access. And there's another thing. People think that classified information is automatically declassified after X years where X can be 20, 25, 30. That isn't true. Uh, there's some stuff, you know, is classified for 60 years, 70 years. Uh, now sometimes you get lucky and the guy who's running the declassification desk now doesn't know why this was classified in the first place and there may have been a good reason. <laughs> uh, so it, you don't, also, there's an enormous amount of classified material out there. Uh, the National Archives, you know, has literally billions of documents. One Air Force record group, 341. Has 9,800 feet of material, that's shelf space of archive boxes. That's a thousand four-drawer filing cabinets. Uh, and that's just Air Force headquarters from, say, 48 until 56. So the Eisenhower Library still has a quarter of a million classified documents. He went out of office in 1961, mind you. And so you don't get to rummage through these things and say, I want a copy. And they say, no, you can't have it. You call for boxes. They give you the boxes. If there's classified documents, they're withdrawn. And they leave a little piece of paper that says uh, two pages, memo, John Smith, Tom Jones, uh, top secret. And they give you a date. So you don't know what's there. You can request it. And five years later, you might get it. (laughs) It's taken that long for some stuff that I've got. (laughs) So... It is not easy to break through that wall of security. And not everybody's lying to you when they say they don't have anything. Um, Sometimes they do lie. And you run into funny situations. The National Security Agency, NSA means no such agency or never says anything. (laughs) It took umpteen years to get access to, they admitted having, back in 1980, 156 UFO documents. We want them, you can't have them. Even the justification to the federal court judge, mind you, for withholding them was highly classified. 80% blacked out the first time around. Eventually, we got those in the mid-90s. 156 pages in which you have one sentence you can read, and everything else is whited out. And the reason for the whiteout, I was told by somebody there, was I was showing the blacked out documents on television and getting a good laugh. You know, they say they're not covering anything up, but we don't know what's under the black. Well, now they put it under white. They think we're idiots, you understand. (laughs) But what I'm saying is governments are very capable of keeping secrets. It's the agencies working for the government and the contractors and all the rest. Well, for example, the Lockheed uh, Stealth Fighter Program, $10 billion was spent over a 10-year period in total secrecy, nobody knew about it. $10 billion, a lot of money, a lot of people.
0: $10 billion.
1: $10 billion, yeah. And, yeah, we got stealth fighters. Uh, now, another example, the NRO, National Reconnaissance Office. The other guys who run the big, powerful spy satellites, some of which can cost half a billion dollars for one piece of equipment up there. Anyway, they admitted, uh, I guess it was three years ago now, that they had canceled a program they'd had with Boeing on developing a new satellite architecture, how to put the pieces together and so forth. They had only spent $14 billion and didn't get what they wanted.
0: Where does this money come from? And how did you end up finding that out for sure? And how does that information get to us?
1: It came out in an article. Uh, I guess when you cancel contracts, you have to say something. And, uh, you know, because that's, A lot of people working at Boeing uh, and other places. And so everyone, there there is an organization of scientists for getting rid of secrecy. That's not the name of it, but something like that. And they keep track of a lot of this stuff. And there there are many, well, let me give you another example, one I like. uh, The Corona spy satellite, just like the Cigar or the old Toyota or whatever. It was the first spy satellite that the United States had. And the work was done in secret, and after 12 failures, all covered up oh, just a scientific satellite, sorry, we lost it. Uh, the first one got more data on all on Russian uh, military facilities than all the YouTube flights that had preceded it. Uh, the first one, uh, and there were many more that were successful. The first one was successful in 1960. The first public discussion of the corona spy satellites was 1995, by which time, as you might imagine, the technology had greatly advanced. You know, uh, But secrets can be kept, and they're constantly being kept.
0: I think what happens is that when people perceive the government, they're perceiving the only government we are aware of dealing with. That's the perception, that things leak if people have affairs. So obviously things would leak. You know, it's like comparing apples to oranges, really.
1: Well, yeah, a good example of that is Dr. Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute uh, was saying there can't be a cover-up. He said this in public. Uh, Look, this is the same government that fouled up with FEMA on the Katrina business, same government that runs the post office. These guys can't keep secrets. Now, if he had mentioned NRO... NSA, OSI, ONI, CIA, just that whole alphabet soup of agencies, uh, then I could understand it. But what's the connection between, you know, FEMA and any of these groups? Uh, if, If anything's classified there, it's only their incompetence, maybe. But it's not the same thing. And people are dreaming if they think the agencies can't keep secrets. And that has a downside. We don't know what's going on that maybe we should know about what other countries are doing, for example. Or, as we have heard uh, with this Egyptian stuff right now, we don't know what our government has done in our names. uh, Admitted torture, you know, other bad things that I think most Americans would not approve of. But we don't know about it. You know, so... The secrecy is a way of life, and it's not only the United States. And one of the strange responses to UFOs, again, from the SETI community, is that uh, there is no national security aspect to this. If we get a message from an alien civilization, we're going to tell everybody right away.
0: Well, that assumes that their instruments are refined enough and subtle enough and advanced enough to pick up this stuff. It's absurd,
1: Actually, you'd have to say that the aliens are being very primitive in the technology they use. We've only had radio for roughly 110 years, uh, you know, give or take a few. And then Marconi was around 110 years ago, long-distance transmission across the ocean. But there are stars out there in our local neighborhood that are over a billion years older than the sun.
0: Are you talking about Zeta-1 or Zeta-2 reticuli?
1: Well, those two are indeed. Some people say three billion, but I'm only—I'm a very conservative guy, only a billion years older than the Earth. So, to presume they're stuck at our level of technology is absurd. I mean, I don't use a slide rule anymore, and I did fifty years ago. Uh, you every, know, everywhere you look, I'm staring at a computer here, not very advanced. Uh, what would that have been worth forty years ago? <laughs> you know? Exactly. And uh, you look at the internet and. You know, and in my other book, the other one that you mentioned, Sometimes Wrong, we talk about the resistance to new technology. But technology changes. Uh, that leaves out the question, why would an advanced civilization send us messages when they've sent us visitors, if you will, uh, people, spies, call them what you want. Uh, uh, they know from firsthand experience what our society is like a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. And I get people lifting an eyebrow at that, but two numbers sort of set the pace. We earthlings this year, next 12 months, will spend approximately a trillion dollars on things military. Every day of the year, 30,000 children will die needlessly of preventable disease and starvation. Now, how does that look to somebody else? We just had World War II... 50 million earthlings were killed by other earthlings. 1,700 cities were destroyed. Now, if you want one good reason, and in my book there's a whole chapter on why come here, one reason to come here is to make sure we don't go out there with our brand of friendship. Uh, You know, it's a sorry record. And I must take pride in the fact that I'm the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident, but... You know, we we sometimes forget, in 1947, there was only one place in the world in July where you could study the clear indications that soon Earthlings would be moving out, taking their brand of friendship, soon meaning 100 years, which is nothing on a cosmic timescale. Powerful V-2 rockets, we grabbed a whole bunch from the Germans, and we're firing them on White Sands Missile Range. Nuclear weapons, first one was tested on White Sands Missile Range, 1945, Trinity site. And we had our most powerful radar there to track the rockets, which sometimes went south instead of north. Very embarrassing. The Mexicans didn't like that. And that's the beginning of the electronics revolution. Isn't it amazing that uh, Roswell is in southeastern New Mexico? Now, admittedly, I had an English astronomer very haughtily say, well, they could have gone to the Soviet Union. Sorry, they didn't test their first A-bomb until 1949. So what I'm saying is there are many different aspects of of the problem of UFOs. But one of them has to be, how do we look to others? And if you were an alien, would you want us out there? No. I mean, quarantine these guys, you know. We're lucky they don't wipe us out and start again. Of course, this this may have been the devil's island of this corner of the galaxy. They dumped all the bad boys and girls here, and that's why we're so nasty to each other. And it's their fault for leaving those guys here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, Australia takes great pride, and a lot of the first settlers were convicts.
0: How come it is, as a nuclear physicist who's worked on such highly advanced things, that You have the courage to come forward and to have spent the last 50 years in this deep level investigation of something where there's an obvious agenda to push the knowledge, the witnesses, anything that has happened away. How did you muster the courage in the beginning to proceed? Well,
1: I I think it states back to Rose Gutkin, my fifth grade teacher, who told the class that uh, the sun stands still and the planets in the solar system move around the sun. And I piped up that, no, Miss Gutkin, I just read in the encyclopedia. We bought them for 29 cents a volume at the supermarket, you understand. Uh, that the whole solar system is moving around the center of the galaxy at 12 miles a second, which seemed awful fast to me. And she gave me a hard time. No, that's not true. That's not what it says here. And I wasn't accustomed to being given a hard time. I was a straight-A student. And uh, so the next day, I brought in the encyclopedia. And she very reluctantly admitted, well, maybe that was right. But th- I learned a very important lesson from that. If you're going to take on authority figures, have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. I was a high school debater, and there you learn the same thing. You can't fool around. You can't make up stories. You can't you know, lie your way through stuff. But once you've got your facts, put them out there. And I found, uh, when I became a, a speaker I enjoyed being on the stage, I'm a true Leo, and I found, I'm worried about how are people going to react to my presentations. I made every effort to get the facts together, you know, and I worried what the response would be, I learned pretty quickly the response was very good, and because, partly, I had the facts at hand when somebody asked me a question, and I've only had 11 hecklers, two of whom were drunk, and over 700 lectures. And, that, you know, I've, I've covered not the world, but, you know, I've spoken in all 50 states and nine provinces and now 17 other countries. So I had a pretty good sampling out there. And what I found was people that I respected responded very well. That's what got me rolling, really. Uh, Engineering Society of Detroit was sold out three weeks in advance for thousand and eight people for my lecture. And there wasn't one nasty question. And a whole bunch of other groups, well, Los Alamos, the American Nuclear Society uh, section there brought me in, Uh, and we had over 500 people. Again, no negativity.
0: Sorry to interrupt you here. Did you ever concern yourself that because of your work with classified material, that those in charge would try to stop you from speaking out or from doing further investigations?
1: Yes. when I was I was at Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab working on nuclear rockets when uh, I kept doing local talks, and then I got more and more talks, and I finally went to management, and I raised that question. I said, look, I enjoy giving lectures, uh, but I have a wife, a child, a mortgage, a job, a security clearance. I don't want to lose any of these things, so I need a reading from the company on what I can or can't do. And frankly, if they had said, look, you can't say anything more about this, you lose your job, I would have stopped. I mean, you know, family comes first and all this stuff. So they come come back to me a few days later. My boss says, hey, I don't decide those things. He booted it up to management. They came back to me. They said there are three things, Stan. First, you can identify yourself as a Westinghouse nuclear physicist. Second, you can say what you please on your time. Third, we want you to... Start off with a, a statement, a declaimer, if you will, disclaimer, that the views you're about to hear are mine and mine alone and not those of my employer. Now, who could ask for anything more? Well, I did ask for something more. I didn't really, but uh, when Los Alamos called me about speaking there, uh, they said, Would you like to speak? Or it was a guy I knew that I worked with. Uh, he was at Los Alamos working on nuclear rockets, and I was at uh, Westinghouse. He said, oh, I mean on an expense account, Stan. I said, well, I don't make those decisions. I'm in Pittsburgh. He's in New Mexico. So I go to management, and I said, yes. I traveled there on an expense account for the explicit purpose of giving a lecture. Flying saucers are real. to the Los Alamos section, of the American Nuclear Society. Now, admittedly, Westinghouse is a corporate member of the Nuclear Society. I'm a member of the Nuclear Society. Uh, So, you know, it wasn't really out in left field particularly, but and they did the same thing for an Institute of Electrical electronic Engineers, uh, sent me on an expense account. Now, this wasn't implying that they were believers in flying saucers, but some management had heard me give a very well-attended talk in Pittsburgh. I recognized my boss three levels up, you know, and so they knew I I wasn't an unknown quantity, and I was on the radio quite a bit and some television, and so... They weren't flying blind. So I worried about that. But, uh, the response was really good. And what can I say? Uh, they, they indulged me, whatever you want to call it. But, uh, I've talked to thousands of engineers and scientists. And, uh, but uh, get back to your original question. I found that if I stuck to the facts, and didn't enlarge and didn't speculate in ways that didn't make sense, people would respond extremely well. Uh, You know, the industrial guys know, of course, about something about security, most of the people I talk to. They know that secrets can be kept. In other words, I'm in the industrial world, not the academic world. And it's one of the things that bothers me. So many of the academics seem to have no understanding that there's an entire a large, entire world out there in industry in the national labs of people doing very advanced research and development, much of it classified, and whose job is not to publish or perish. Uh, I've had two different people tell me, and it still bugs me, they say, if Roswell had happened, Stan, they'd have had to take half the scientists in the country away from academia to work on that. And I said, you've got to be kidding. We've got this huge group of people Los Alamos had 8,000 employees. Uh, Sandia had that many, Uh, Lawrence Livermore, uh, and there's Oak Ridge and Hanford and, you know, Lockheed and GE and all the rest. All kinds of people with very high skills, very good equipment. That was a nice thing about working on these programs. You got the best stuff. And who didn't have to publish or perish. They wrote technical reports, most of which were classified. I know. I still don't have a copy of all the reports that I wrote. So... Uh, there's a real world. Well, let me give you a, a sample. When I worked on the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department of General Electric in Cincinnati, uh, in 1958, we employed 3,500 people, 1,100 of whom were engineers and scientists. Our budget that year was $100 million, and that was a lot of money in 1958. Now, it may be considered chump change now, you know, a billion here, a billion there, but. That was a big program. It wasn't six professors and 12 grad students. Uh, And so the real world has put me in a position where I'm able to evaluate how people respond. I do a lot of classroom visits when I'm on campuses. And I I once figured out I'd answered over 50,000 questions between radio and television. I saw
0: that in the book. That's exhaustive. (laughs) I'm tired just thinking
1: of it. (laughs) <laughs> well, it, it, and what I'm saying is, I've heard most of the questions
0: before. Like, can we talk about one of them? Sure. I want to take the one that has to do with we can't get there from here.
1: That's one that particularly infuriates
0: me. It's wild, as if we would have the technology in the current NASA setup to do that. Well,
1: yeah, and the kicker is, there's a whole lot of literature, scientific literature. I mean, I was working on nuclear fusion propulsion systems uh, way back in 1961 at uh, uh, General Nucleonics, uh, and the head of the program was a guy who had been head of the fusion development work at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, gave papers at international meetings. Uh, the kicker is that the, we're stuck with the old views without checking the new ones. I do classroom visits from time to time, and I do seminars, colloquium for physics departments and stuff like that. And I, well, a little scenario here. I say, what's the numerical value of 1G, the acceleration of gravity? And they all immediately say 9.8 meters per second squared. And I say, okay, how do you put that in terms that's meaningful to anybody? Like Corv- Compared to Corvettes. They look at me like I'm talking Swahili. Uh, I ask them the speed a light. They quote a number... 300,000 kilometers per second. I said, we don't measure anything else like that. That's 670 million miles an hour. Now, the real question is, how long does it take at 1G to get to the speed of light? Multiple choice. 1,000 years, 100 years, 10 years, 1 year. You'd be amazed at how many professors and students think it's a 1,000 years or 100 years or 10 years. It's really only one. And so they don't have their facts straight. Uh, They don't know anything about the real world because they can't conceive that, you know, people would be looking at this kind of stuff. And uh, the head of the Hayden Planetarium talked about our fastest rocket, the the Voyager spacecraft, uh, would take 70,000 years to get to the nearest star. And they don't bother to say it has no propulsion system on it. It hasn't since it left the Earth. It's like saying that if you throw a bottle in the ocean, that tells you how fast you can cross the ocean. It's coasting. Totally irrelevant. And so they won't dig into this stuff. And I worked on fission nuclear rockets. Now, they're impressive because, well, Los Alamos is biggest one. 4,400 megawatts, less than 7 feet in diameter. That's twice the power of Grand Coulee Dam, which is a little larger than 7 feet in diameter. That was operated successfully in the 60s, mind you. They are totally unaware of the nuclear propulsion work. They may have heard of nuclear submarines. But how many people know that the Navy, and it's not just the United States Navy, has built aircraft carriers that can operate, nuclear-powered ones, that can operate for 18 years without refueling and a little uh, collection of data over a 10-year period to show the kind of progress we've made. In 1942, a big bomb was a 10-ton blockbuster. Made pretty good mess. It took a B-29 to carry it, but uh, that's exploding a lot of dynamite, if you will. Three years later, first atom bomb, about 16,000 tons of TNT energy release equivalent. That was in '45. Seven years after that, the first H bomb, Mike it was called, (laughs) a three mile wide fireball. This was a nuclear fusion device, and it released the energy of 10 million tons of TNT. So from 10 tons to 16,000 to 10 million tons in 10 years. This is the real world we're living in. This isn't theoretical, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could, but we can't, so we won't kind of stuff. And so every aspect of the whole business of propulsion has been misrepresented by the ancient academics and fossilized physicists. I give an example in, well, in science was wrong as well, of a guy who calculated, an astronomer, Dr. Campbell, 1941, published a paper calculating the required initial launch weight of a rocket able to get a man to the moon and back. There was a lot of science fiction being written about going to the moon, and he was saying, ha, that's ridiculous. So he published a paper in which he calculated that weight. The weight at launch would have to be, he said, a million, million tons. And he was a little off. The right answer is 3,000 tons. He was off a factor of 300 million Now, that's making a mistake, a lot of mistakes. (laughs) He made all the wrong assumptions because he hadn't studied any of the literature. Uh, For example, he assumed a single-stage rocket. He assumed too low an exhaust velocity, too low an acceleration, assumed that you'd have to use a retro rocket to slow down when you came back instead of using the atmosphere. He assumed that the rocket would have to provide all the energy.
0: I thought that was very interesting in the book Flying Saucers in Science about how a rocket could navigate space much more effectively in terms of energy usage.
1: It's truly incredible. That's what happens when you get a bunch of good engineers whose focus is not on publishing, but on solving a problem.
0: Can you share a piece from that? Because I think that the audience would find it very interesting to hear how it could be done much more fuel efficiently.
1: Well, he assumed a single-stage rocket, for example. That means you got to keep accelerating the can in which the first batch of fuel was carried. Why not throw away the can, and you don't need to accelerate it? He assumed that you used much too low an acceleration, one g. Astronauts routinely take five g's. A trained pilot can take uh, fourteen g's for two minutes. That's three hundred miles an hour per second. You know, at at uh, 1G, you get to 63 miles an hour in three seconds. That's a pretty hot car, incidentally.
0: <laughs> uh, he
1: forgot the fact that uh, the atmosphere will slow you down when you come back. you got to be smart. That is, hit the, the uh, atmosphere at the right angle. Remember Apollo 13? Yes. <laughs> if the angle isn't right, you're in deep trouble. Either you make a big hole in the ground or you leave the Earth forever. Uh, so being smart's important. And... We use the gravitational field of the moon. You don't need to put any energy into the pot. You'd be in the right place at the right time, and it'll pull you. That's what gravity's all about. And so we use uh, cosmic freeloading on all our deep space probes. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to do them. The weight goes up enormously greater. And so... Well, as an example, on the Apollo program, originally the plan required two Saturn V launches. Uh, Earth orbit rendezvous. Instead, we had lunar orbit rendezvous, and it could be done with one. Uh, somebody convinced Wernher von Braun. let us I've done the calculations. Let's look at them. Looks good to me, and there are a lot of advantages in having only one launch. I mean, launch pads and weather and all kinds of things. Uh, That can go wrong that you can avoid if you only have one. Uh, So smart engineers figuring out solutions to problems uh, are the way you get things done. Uh, Well, a typical one, how many people have noticed that the astronauts always go up on their backs? There's a reason for that. You can stand far more acceleration back to front than foot to head. Knees and hips don't like a lot of acceleration. Uh, And so it's being clever... When you say, my goal is to get the job done, not how to figure out how it can't be done. And many of the early uh, articles that deal with travel to the stars have made all the wrong assumptions. Uh, Well, for example, why one Nobel Prize winning physicist, he said, well, let's see, you're going to accelerate at 1g for halfway out. Let's say you want to go to a place 12 light years away. And then you'll turn around and decelerate at 1G. Well, how utterly absurd a mission profile. At, as I mentioned earlier, at 1G, at the end of a year, you're going at close to the speed of light. Why would you keep accelerating? Uh, it's like a 747 doesn't keep accelerating. It gets to cruise speed, and it cruises. Same in your car. You're not jamming on the gas so that you can go faster and faster and faster. It's silly. And... The choices you make, in other words, have uh, implications. And so it's a good thing we have engineers solving these problems instead of uh, professors, uh, because the professors don't have the right experience to get the job done. And this is in many different areas. It's not just, uh, you know, flight to the stars. Also, why is it that people want to talk? I've had a noted uh, astrophysicist, professor, uh, talk about, well, I used to think, wouldn't it be great to go to Andromeda, but take way too much energy. Andromeda is another galaxy that's over 2 million light years away. Why would one worry about that when within, oh, say, 55 light years of here, there's a couple of thousand stars? Uh, You know, it's a big difference. If my wife wants a loaf of bread for dinner, I don't say, well, uh, there's a great bakery in Sydney, Australia. I'll go down there. I'll be back next (laughs) week. She says, the supermarket's a mile away. We need it for dinner, not for
0: next week. That's a good analogy. I like that. We live in a real world. Yeah, it's kind of kooky. But a lot of this conversation fills the talk about the issue of getting there from here. My question to you is, do you think that knowing the smart engineers and the people that are working on this now, not necessarily when you did, but now, do you think that there's a whole new technology for getting, let's say, to Zeta-1 or Zeta-2 reticuli or a place closer? Do they have to use typical fuel or is something being well, used that's different? Nuclear
1: fusion is not typical fuel. You use deuterium and helium-3, two very light uh isotopes of hydrogen and helium, which just happen to be the two most abundant substances in the universe, which is kind of handy if you're going someplace. I think we will work out fusion. And also, we need to subdivide the problem into two parts. Uh, People say, how could an alien spacecraft come here from someplace else and crash in the New Mexico desert? Nobody said it did. Uh, The analogy I use, we have these huge nuclear-powered Aircraft carrier, they carry 75 little airplanes, which are not nuclear-powered. And the airplanes are great in the air, lousy on the water, and the, <laughs> the aircraft carrier certainly doesn't fly. Uh, it's its a two-part system. It's a very different environment between the stars than it is in the atmosphere of a planet. So uh, the question of between the stars, nuclear fusion would do it. Uh, I mean, when you can kick particles out the back end of a rocket that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket, uh, it's a whole different world, in other words. Do I think there's something beyond that? Of course, because technological progress almost invariably comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. A laser isn't just a better light bulb, entirely different physics, the fission and fusion rockets are not just better chemical rockets, entirely different physics. Do I think we know what the ultimate is? Of course not. We only discovered the neutron in 1932. There have been neutrons long before that, I'll guarantee you. <laughs> you know? So uh, one that I have suggested to people, and don't ask me to design a system. I mean, if you can't design it, there can't be. Well, that's ridiculous. But uh, we think that uh, particles are made up of even smaller particles. And when we learn how to release those, uh, we can take advantage of one of the strangest aspects of Mother Nature. Intuitively crazy. When you go from the large atom to the small nucleus, you go down in size by a factor of thousands of times. You go go up in energy per particle millions of times. Now, you'd think when you get small, there'd be less energy, wouldn't you? But it doesn't work that way. So as we probe inside the atom, uh, I'm sure we'll find more ways of doing things. Also, we will probably figure out uh, anti-gravity. I mean, you could say a rocket is an anti-gravity device. After all, gravity pulls down and it pushes up, so it's anti-gravity. But uh, we don't know a lot about gravity. And it may be that there's a crazy world of superconducting magnets, uh, materials that have no resistance to the flow of electricity if you keep them cold enough. And that means you can generate a huge magnetic field without uh, having to use a lot of energy. Now, we know that there are diamagnetic substances, things that are repelled by a magnetic field. Maybe we can make stuff that's diagravitational, that is repelled by a gra- an appropriate gravitational field. I don't know how to do that. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been working on this for the last this 50 is, years. This is
0: fascinating. <laughs> Can you talk about Project Blue Book Report 14? Because this seems to be an overriding theme and yeah. critical document that overlays everything with regard to evidence.
1: Yeah, it, it, I've stumbled across this. I mean, I read my first book in 1958 by Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was head of Project Blue Book in the early 50s. And it it intrigued me. It didn't convince me, but it intrigued me. I shared it with a neighbor, an engineer 10 years older than I was, and it, he was more intrigued than I was. So I respected Charlie, and I read 15 more books, some of which were chunk. If I'd read them first, I'd have never read another one. And then I stumbled at the University of California, Berkeley in a privately published version of project blue book, special report number 14. Now I was surprised because a in all the books that I'd read, none of them had mentioned it, you know, how do you get the number 14? Where's one through 13 is also a question. And secondly, I, I was in data heaven. I mean, charts, tables, graphs, maps. Wow. Just what I <laughs> like. Lots of data. But The guy who had somehow gotten a copy and reproduced it included the Air Force press release when this thing was completed in 1955, October. In it, the Secretary of the Air Force is quoted as saying, on the basis of this report, didn't give the title, interestingly enough, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3%, could have been explained as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Well, that sounds pretty straightforward. We did a lot of looking. They didn't say who did the work or where the work was done, but we did a lot of looking, nothing to it. Well, I had the report, and I was looking at the tables and the graphs and stuff. Holy cow, the unknowns were 21.5%. They weren't 3%. That's not a round-off error. Furthermore, there's a separate category. Insufficient information, 9.3%. So he was lying through his teeth. Now, working under security, you get careful about what you say, and sometimes you tiptoe around the truth a little bit, not to let out classified information. But this was so blatant, it really made me angry. And I was determined to get to the bottom of this. And the report, incidentally, not only covered 3,201 sightings, but they did a quality evaluation of all of them. The better the quality, the more likely to be unexplainable. They did a cross-comparison between the unknowns and the knowns. Now, they had a rule, incidentally. No report could be listed as an unknown unless all four of the final report evaluators agreed. Any two could label it anything else. And still, they found that the probability that the unknowns were just knowns, they did a statistical cross-comparison, a chi square analysis for people like Matt, and the probability that the unknowns were just misknowns was less than 1%. Now, the data in that report, in other words, throws out almost all the objections by the noisy negativists. Carl Sagan and I were classmates for three years. Yet on a couple of occasions, he said, there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable. There are reliable sightings that aren't interesting, but there are no interesting and reliable sightings. No reference is given. And it's totally false. The most... You know, the highest percentage of unknowns were from the most reliable sightings. So that book, and I'm still distributing copies of it because you can't get it anyplace. It's listed on my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. But for people to make all kinds of silly claims without referencing that report, and it's one of my complaints about the city guys, they say there is no evidence and there's no mention of the five large-scale scientific studies that i discuss and flying saucers and science. Seth Shostak was at a lecture I gave. We each gave three lectures on uh, Queen Elizabeth II and a trip its last westward voyage. And after each one of these studies, I describe it, show a slide, tell what's in it, and then ask, how many people here have read this? And typically, it's under 2%. Seth didn't raise his hand for any of the five documents I talk about. But if you look at this SETI literature, there's no mention of not only this, but the other studies. Now, the first job of a scientist going to make a pronouncement about something should be to study the evidence. I feel very strongly about that. And when I find out they haven't studied the evidence, and what is their opinion worth? What's that based on? Research by proclamation. Four basic rules for debunkers. But the public doesn't know. I'm not going to tell them. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. If you can't attack the data, attack the people. It's easier. And do your research by proclamation. Investigation is too much trouble, and nobody will know the difference anyway. So I'm very wary and very cynical about the debunkers. And the same rules apply in any field. You run into the same approach uh, by debunkers. Uh, it's a fact of life. and I'm sorry about it. I wish it weren't that way. I wish I could say scientists are objective and careful, and they collect data first, announce conclusion later. It's simply
0: not. SETI seems to be a waste of money to me, knowing the evidence that's available to people. It seems like a huge waste of money. It makes
1: good jobs for people, and I think it stands for silly effort to investigate. And in case people think I'm talking, you know, out of the side of my mouth, uh, I have debated with Seth, coast-to-coast radio. I got 57 percent of the vote. He got 33 and 10 percent said, I don't know. I'm willing to take on any of them because I find they haven't done their homework. And, you know, that's disturbing to me as a scientist because I I was one of these starry-eyed kids who thought science was the pursuit of truth. Of course, I thought journalism was the pursuit of truth, too.
0: (laughs) Good luck on that.
1: Uh, Yeah, but what I'm saying is, uh, in case people are listening and wondering, "Well, why doesn't he speak up to these guys? I have. And anybody wants to set up a debate, be happy to be involved. Uh, But uh, I might suggest to my opponent that uh, maybe he read one of my books. Uh, Seth did say on Coast to Coast once that he had uh, flying saucers in science on his night table. He didn't say he'd read it, of course. I read his books. I read, you know, that's one of the rules of debating. Uh, Dr. Michael Shermer, he and I debated. I got 80% of the vote with him because he really didn't know anything. And, you know, you've got to express a viewpoint, do your homework.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about the fifth annual Global Competitiveness Forum in Saudi Arabia, which you were a member of this five-person panel, along with Michelle Koku, and ex-presidents have come there, a lot of people in high places have been there. Yeah. Why are they talking now about contact in outer space?
1: Well, you know, that was my first thought was, is this outfit legitimate? I, I don't, I've don't. i never heard of the Saudi Arabian General uh, Investment Agency. <laughs> I thought somebody's pulling my leg here, you know, but I checked and they're real. And so my thought was the same as when I first heard the Pope's comment about, well, oh, maybe God made our brethren in outer space just like he made us, you know, no big deal. And my first thought was, what does he know that we don't know? <laughs> is it getting ready to, for the world's billion-plus Catholics to be ready for disclosure? Uh, and I wondered, do these guys know something? Well, one of the people who was involved in inviting me, I did find out, had had a sighting himself. But their whole focus was on innovation. And my response was, as I said before, that um, my mantra, if you will, is technological progress comes from doing things differently. And they're, they're looking at the whole picture Of competitiveness and that includes innovation and they looked at uh, the need for freedom to fail willingness to take risk educating your people being aware that the future belongs to those who invest now and you see a a good counter example of that is Egypt versus Saudi Arabia the kingdom has spent 25% of its budget on education and they're educating women which surprised me a bit. There were women presenters. Uh, yeah, there were women in burkas and stuff, not all of them, but uh, but it was a breath of fresh air that powerful people were there. You know, the head of Volkswagen, the big shots on Google and uh, IBM and the president of Georgia Tech and, you know, a kind of movers and shakers of this world. And the response I got from people afterwards because uh, I was still there for a couple of days, and you, you have meals with people and stuff, was, you know, I was surprised when they had that panel, but uh, it was a good idea. That was very interesting and exciting, and probably we will be in contact with others, and we better be prepared for it. It was a very enthusiastic response. Remember, these are not the the old guys who say we have to... That's not how we do it. We have to do things the way we've always done them. Well, that gets you nowhere. The buggy whip manufacturers don't have a big business these days.
0: I know that there's a screenplay being written called Magic Men that's been optioned about your life story and another person's life story. And I was wondering what you think about that.
1: Well, you know, at first, gee, I'm honored. And then I thought, hey, I write books. I don't do movies. But I have done a couple of movies. UFOs are real and stuff. And the more I thought about it, the more I liked the idea, Because partly because Bryce Zabel, who's involved, he did uh, um, Dark Skies for NBC back, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago, whenever it was. Uh, I've known him for a long time, and he, he's a sharp guy. And movies will reach a lot of people, and the goal is, uh, and the screenplay is being written. I mean, they're not just talking. Uh, to put out a dynamic, uh, dramatic Movie that looks at the ups and downs of investigation. The other guy is uh, Don Schmidt, who has been focused on Roswell for a long time. And we've known each other for, I don't know, 30 years, something like that. And, uh, you know, our work with partners and the, the times you stumble and the people who try to take you by lying to you. Uh, let's hope it'll turn out to be a dramatic construction of, uh, oh, let's say all the president's men and JFK.
0: <laughs>
1: and I want Richard Dreyfus to play me,
0: but I won't have any say. <laughs> How is obviously, exciting. It sounds very exciting. It sounds like also Edgar Mitchell, who wrote the foreword for you in this book, Flying Saucers and Science, sounds like Edgar Mitchell's also very clear and upfront that
1: He's talked to the right people, and he's convinced they're coming here. Remember, he grew up near Roswell, of
0: course. Right.
1: And so he has old-timers down there that he could talk to. Yeah, he's not the only one, but I was pleased that he would write the foreword for the book. And uh, we had dinner together one time. We have met and have had some conversations. And, uh, you know, the astronauts are pretty sharp guys. Uh, He was the sixth man to walk on the moon. That's a rather unique honor, you know. And uh, he does, because he was in the Navy and a pilot, and I should correct something, that many people have the impression, well, NASA's a civilian outfit. How could they know anything about this? NASA was directly converted from the old NACA, which is the National uh, Committee on uh, Aerospace. Oh, boy, I forgot what the initials stand for. Anyway, it was aerospace and uh, aviation uh, and They were converted to NASA. But they did all kinds of classified work, and I worked on NASA contracts that are classified, nuclear rocket engines, stuff like that, and nuclear power plants for space. The data was classified. These weren't black projects. In other words, that we were working on them wasn't classified. The data was classified. Uh, Unlike, say, the stealth aircraft, which was a black program. (laughs) Nobody's supposed to know that it exists, for that matter. So... NASA is much more than people think it is in some ways, and much less in others. My, I have a complaint about NASA. When I was working on the space program, 60s and stuff, I thought for sure we'd have a base on the moon by now, and would have gone to Mars. The impetus was there, and I, I regret that NASA really hasn't had a goal since Jack Kennedy said, let's get a man to the moon and back safely by the end of the decade. That was a brilliant goal because it was far enough ahead so you could accomplish uh, other goals like uh, orbital rendezvous and develop all kinds of gimcracker you'd need. But close enough so everybody expected to be alive. And it was a national project. We all took pride in it. But do you realize there hasn't been a goal like that since?
0: Do you think if there was a goal and if they were aware that there was other life like us or different or more advanced? We wouldn't know anyway, would we? Well, probably not.
1: Uh,
0: we're not in the even need to know. We're beyond the need to know.
1: And the the thing is that we do have to, I, I know that there are a number of people around who say, we're entitled to know everything. Disclosure should be yesterday. You know, we, we tell us all. I'm not one of those people because having worked under security, There is clearly a national security aspect of this on several different levels. The obvious one is anybody who can build things that act the way saucers act in the atmosphere is going to rule the planet. They make wonderful weapons delivery and defense systems. Look at the billions of dollars we spend trying to develop better ones. So these are ideal craft. That's the first thing. Second thing is, if there's going to be disclosure... It should be done in a way which leads to the improvement of mankind. That is, you don't just dump on the world, oh, by the way, you know, there are aliens coming here. What do you think of that? It should be, if you make an announcement, it should be, A, international. I mean, we are all earthlings, much as we don't like to admit that some of the time. B, it should be saying, this is what we're doing about it. In other words, there are international conferences on the religious, political, economic, Philosophical, if you want, aspects to this. You don't just plunge in. I think the world can handle it. I come on very strong in my lectures and I don't panic anybody. You know, they're not leaving saying, My God, the sky is falling in. The aliens are here. Ow! It's not like that.
0: I think, though, with your frame of reference, being a nuclear physicist, being a scientist, having researched this topic for 50 years, you have the insulation of immersion. Which is powerful and yes. obvious, but the average person doesn't have the same thing, and particularly if they're very religious.
1: The religious part is, I've sat on an airplane where a guy told me there can't be anybody out there and uh, who still believes the Earth was created in 4004 B.C. Uh, I think it was October 25th on a Thursday afternoon. But uh, it, th- th- what you say is true. I'm immersed in it. But what I have found is that Partly because of Carl Sagan's work, most people now seem to be convinced there's other life out there. The the, the argument I hear all the time is, surely in this huge universe, we can't be the only ones. And we haven't been around very long when the universe is very old. I mean, you start talking around billions of years. Ooh, our history only goes back a few thousand years, doesn't it? Hmm. Uh, So I find that most people are ready for the notion of aliens being out there. Uh, and especially, what have we, I don't know what the latest number is. It's well over 500 exoplanets have been found.
0: Would you explain what that is, an exoplanet?
1: An exoplanet is an extraterrestrial planet that is one outside our solar system. And we argued our concept of how planets got formed was wrong, not surprisingly. We thought it was a rare event, two stars coming close to each other, ripping out parts of one, and that formed planets. And now we know that planetary formation is apparently part of the development of many, many, many stars. Uh, the early pioneers in finding these uh, oddball planets out there, oddball because they're not here, uh, has estimated that in our galaxy there are over 20 billion small planets, I mean Earth-sized planets, if you will. Ours isn't the smallest in the solar system.
0: How does one in science come to that kind of number for 20 billion planets? What he
1: did was his organization has followed 100 stars for over five years, looking at the planets around those stars. It takes a lot of orbits to get a good handle on the size and the mass and all that sort of stuff. And when you plot on a chart, how many are big ones, you know, like Jupiter, let's say, and how many are smaller like Neptune and when you plot this up, it looks perfectly clear, partly because our observation techniques have greatly improved. You can find smaller stuff now than you could 10 years ago, let's say. Um, You find that it looks like about a quarter of the planets will be uh, earth size, small ones, even though the first ones we find are the big ones because they're easiest to find. So uh, they've been doing this for a lot of years. And you contrast that with Frank Drake, Californian, the uh, author of the Drake equation he is being generous when he says, "Well, there might be as many as ten thousand planets in our galaxy that might be able to transmit radio waves." Well, I think a better answer is ten billion uh and that changes the picture you know we're not uh, we're not the only ones in the neighborhood <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination also Clearly. the uh Frank doesn't include colonization and migration in other words you live and die as a civilization and that's it rather than you plant another colony over here and another colony over there and they plant colonies down the road and every civilization is going to realize that there can be catastrophes an asteroid beats the heck out of your planet Uh, volcanoes shut out the sunlight for a year and all the plants die you know little things like that So you've got to be ready, a plague uh, of some kind, a terrible flood, uh, who knows. Uh, But you have to be ready. And the thing, you mentioned Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli. These are the closest to each other pair of sun-like stars in our local neighborhood. They're only 39 light years from here. And those two stars, both sun-like stars, are only an eighth of a light year apart. From a planet around one, looking at the other, it's visible all day long, and you can directly observe the planets around the other ones. You can tell whether they have life. And they're a billion years older than the sun. Now, they would certainly be expected to develop interstellar travel because there's a nearby place to go. And secondly, they've had plenty of time to do it. So we we sit in our black holes here and put our hands over our eyes, and we don't want to look at what the real world is like out there. Exciting times. I wish I was younger.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Betty and Barney Hill.
1: Well, I, I met them both. Uh, Barney died in 1969, and I was then we had dinner together in Pittsburgh uh, the first time around. And then uh, I've seen Betty many times since we've done television shows together. And the book, Captured, is by myself and Betty's niece, Kathleen Marden, who has trained in sociology, has all the hypnosis tapes. It was the first abduction that got public attention. It wasn't the first abduction. We hadn't heard about it, and that wasn't because they wanted any attention, but somebody broke a promise and released data they shouldn't have released and so forth. Anyway, they were in New Hampshire, 1961, September 19th, driving home, spotted a UFO. This is the very short version. Uh, they stopped a couple times to look at it late at night, no traffic around, and, uh, it was obviously not a star or a planet because it was along the old man of the mountain, a big uh, sort of lifelike statue uh, rock formation. It's was one and a half times the size, and that's 48 feet big. So people say, oh, it was just a planet. Boy, that's the strangest planet like Jupiter uh, anybody's ever seen. Anyway, they stopped... Barney had his binoculars, looked through the windows of this large, uh, round object. Two rows of windows, strange beings inside, more or less humanoid, but not looking like us, really. Scared the heck out of them, because one was staring back at him. Uh, Dashed back to the car, there's some strange beeping sounds from the trunk region of the car. It happened again, and then they found themselves 30-some miles down the road. They got home two hours later than they should have gotten home. And it was very, very puzzling. And, I mean, they saw a UFO, no question about that. The thing was stopped. It was just a couple hundred feet away. It was hovering. It was noiseless. And they remember something in the road as they drove along, but sort of faded out. And they reported it the next day. And Kathy's mother was Betty's uh, sister, And Kathy was in the room when Betty called her sister to tell her about seeing this UFO. Now, it was a couple of years. This missing time bothered them, and Barney developed ulcers, wasn't able to work, went to a psychologist who sent him to Dr. Benjamin Simon, a great psychiatrist. They both wound up. This is an interracial couple, which was a little unusual for New Hampshire. Barney was black, Betty white. Now, Dr. Simon didn't know a darn thing about flying saucers, but he knew an awful lot about people who'd had post-traumatic stress disorder. They called it shell-shock war veterans back then. He actually ran a hospital with 3,000 beds for some such guys from World War II. He developed a procedure of using uh, medical hypnosis, inducing amnesia after each session in which they relived a part of the traumatic experience. Gradually introduced it back to them and got these people working. The Army did a movie, Let There Be Light, starring Ben Simon, uh, for the kind of work that he had done. He had outstanding success. And what came out under hypnosis, with these two done separately and with amnesia after each session, so they couldn't talk to each other about what they had said under hypnosis, he taped them all, all these sessions, finally played them back a tape when he felt they were ready. Uh, uh, composite tape, and they were astonished to find that uh, during that missing time, the car went down a crummy dirt road after going off the main highway, no good reason to do that at all. They were taken on board, examined, treated as specimens, put back out, told they wouldn't remember what happened, and didn't. Now, that's a pretty far-out story, let's face it, and Dr. Simon kept trying to explain it away. Uh, Betty had some dreams about being abducted within a few weeks of when this happened and she wrote them down and Dr. Simon would just as soon have passed off Barney's reaction and well Betty told him the dreams and he incorporated them in his psyche if you will but it didn't work out that way. And one of the things that happened Betty described how uh, she's asked the leaders I know you're not from around here understatement of the year where are you from? So he showed her a I'll call it a hologram, a three-dimensional model, star maps, points of light connected by different kinds of lines, uh, trips we make often, trade missions, uh, occasional uh, expeditions, that sort of thing. And he, she asks him, well, where are you on the map? Wise guy alien says, uh, do you know where you are on the map? No, I don't know anything about astronomy. Well, how can I tell you where I'm from if you don't know where you're at? End of discussion. Dr. Simon asked her to, this came out under hypnosis, asked her to draw it later on. She did, it's in the book, The Interrupted Journey, way back 1965. Uh, The trouble is, what sense does it make? Well, a brilliant woman named Marjorie Fish built a total of 27 three-dimensional models of our local galactic neighborhood, little beads on strings, hard part was getting the right distance data. It's a long story, it's told in the book, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. But out of that came this identification of the base stars, two stars close to each other on this map, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli. Nobody had paid any attention to these stars, but now we know they're the closest to each other pair of sun-like stars in our whole local neighborhood. That was an exciting work. I was the first to publish about it in the early 70s. Uh, and helped Marjorie have a couple of presentations that she did and stuff, and uh, all kinds of people telling all kinds of phony baloney stories about it. Uh, it. It's one of the things you stand back and you say, where the heck did that come from? The same goes for Roswell. For that, and, uh, you know, they make it up. Uh, they throw darts at dartboard They come up with possible explanations.
0: I want to go back to what you were just talking about—that content having to do with their abduction. Is it true, then, that as a scientist, you accept hypnosis as a way to find data?
1: Well, it depends on how you define all your terms there. Yes. The simple answer would be yes. Uh, Cops have used hypnosis to retrieve license plates and uh, rapist's identification and stuff that the people don't. Right.
0: I accept hypnosis as a part of the scientific field.
1: The big thing that you got to worry about is not putting ideas in the mind of the witness, not leading the witness. Uh, The witness has to tell you or relive his story, not the story you wish he were going to tell you.
0: Right. But assuming there's no interference that way and it's done properly.
1: Yes, I believe it can be used successfully. That's where Dr. Simon, you know, your buddy's head gets blown off next to you in the battlefield. That's a little hard to, to live with. You know, why uh, Why wasn't it me? Why was it him? Or uh, this kind of thing. There are serious problems here. And, and Simon actually worked with guys who were blind for no good reason and got them back to being unblind, if i are seeing, I guess, it would be better. So properly done. It's just like penicillin will help uh, treat most infections, but there are some people who will die if you give them penicillin. So you can't say penicillin is all good. I'm certainly not saying. All hypnotic regression sessions will give you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I'm not saying that at all. It has to be properly done. And remember that the subject likes to please the hypnotist, usually. That's why you have to be so careful about not, you know, uh, putting words in their mouth. Uh, And sometimes a, a good guy will test them by saying, what color was the hair? And the guy, the subject says, hmm. There is no here. That's strange. You know, what was happening in the corner of the room? Well, uh, gee whiz, there, there is no corner. You know, so you, you've got to be open-ended and you've got to be very careful not to lead them down the path that you want them to take.
0: Have there been any other abduction reports that you accepted or that you accept now?
1: Well, the first one certainly that comes to mind is Travis Walton. Uh the fire in the sky. Now the movie was a travesty about what happened, if you'll pardon the pun. But uh, uh, yeah, I've been in Travis's house. Uh, He passed polygraph examinations, met his family. He's in my movie. UFOs are real. And we were up in Arizona out in the forest. Uh, Boy, you got those guys with these 20 inch chainsaws. (laughs) You can see why the sheriff was thinking, well, maybe this was a chainsaw murder. Travis was gone for five days. And uh, well recognized in the community. Uh, You know, small towns are hard to get away with being a liar without a lot of people knowing it. Uh, There are others, too. As a matter of fact, about a third, well, depends on who you talk to 25 to 30 percent of abduction people remember everything, of abductees remember everything without being hypnotized. Uh, again, even then, you have to be careful how you get the story told. And any cop has the same problem. When a witness has been involved in a complicated, terrifying experience, you really want to be careful how you elicit that data from him. Uh, the emotional thing, and you know, you run into the Patty Hearst syndrome kind of thing, uh, we all react differently to stressful situations. And especially there have been cases, you know, more than one person, like with Betty and Barney, where uh, a parent and a child, where the great concern on the part of the parent is what happens to the child. Remember, especially with Betty and Barney, they had no way of knowing that a lot this has happened to other people. Were they going to be brought back? I mean, they're obviously under control of these strange, advanced frightening beings. That's a terrifying situation. As a matter of fact, Dr. Simon said in writing that uh, their emotional intensity as they relived, not retold, relived the experience, uh, was as great as that of any of the military guys that he had worked with, and that covers a lot of ground. He had to stop two sessions, one each, because he wasn't sure they could handle it. The terror was so palpable. You know, blood pressure going up and all kinds of things when people are extremely frightened. And so, there are lessons to be learned here. I am certainly not saying that everybody who claims to have been abducted by aliens has been. That's not my view at all. There are liars. There are people who don't always tell the truth. People who make up stories. People who can't remember and fill in the blanks. People who want attention. That's not only a ufology, I think, you know? <laughs> you know. There are people, I've talked to the police here. I live in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, and I've talked to the RCMP. And not only, two two interesting things they said. I said, when you give a lot of publicity to a case and you ask for people to come forward, you get a lot of responses. Oh, yeah, hundreds. What percent of those would you say are useful? Um. 2 to 4%, but that's how we solve most crimes. Then he went on to talk about the fact, yes, I asked, do you get confessions from people who obviously couldn't have done the crime? Happens a lot. We don't know why. You know, people who say they, they were the person, they did it, they shot them, and you know, where the, you can easily prove that they couldn't have. Now what's going on here? I don't know the dynamics. People who want attention, want to be the center of, of Media attention, I I don't know.
0: But the bottom line is that you do accept the fact that abduction occurs, that it has occurred for a long time, even though we have maybe only a certain amount of, quote, evidence. I think it's interesting that you said, was it 25 to 30 percent of the people who are abducted remember without having to be hypnotized?
1: That's right. And remember, there is physical evidence in the case of Betty and Barney Hill. What was it? Well, Betty's dress was very strange. They have the star map. They, they, uh, oh, well, and I guess you maybe you wouldn't call it physical. they came at Betty with a big needle that they put in her navel and it hurt and the leader she screamed, and the leader stops the pain right away. Well, it was a pregnancy test that made no sense in nineteen sixties one uh later, we know amniocentesis came into the picture, but Barney had a row of uh, a ring of warts in his groin. I call them warts in quotes because some kind of growth, and they had to be surgically removed. Barney's shoes were scuffed. Now, he was a meticulous dresser. How could you be driving a car from Montreal down to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and have your shoes be so badly scuffed? They only used them for gardening after that. There were uh, a bunch of circles about the size, let's say, of a silver dollar on the trunk of their car. And for some reason, Betty's... Uh, sister asked a neighbor who was a physicist uh, any suggestions. He said, yeah, why don't you bring a, a compass close to the uh, these circles? And they did, and the compass went crazy and stopped whirling when they took it away. And Kathy saw this. Other people saw it. That's physical evidence. Now, we don't have the card. We haven't done any analysis. And at that time, nobody knew about the on-board part of the story. Uh so, there were things, uh, the dress has been tested and there's some strange stuff on it. This is all, uh, told in the book. But, uh, you'd be surprised how often there is some kind of evidence. There might be somebody who witnessed that the person was no longer where they should have been and then came back. You know, where the heck were they? <laughs> and, uh, uh, so there is physical evidence in a number of cases, marks on the body, uh, that, uh, I'll call them punch marks, scoop marks might be better, are often reported, uh, you know, maybe a quarter inch wide and a sixteenth of an inch deep. And uh, pathologists say that's how you take samples of skin to run tests on it. Uh, there have been implants found. Uh, Dr. Roger Lear out in the San Fernando Valley has written books about uh extraction of implants from people and yeah we all know that some people have a piece of glass and metal in their feet and in their hands but some of these are really peculiar they give off certain frequency radio signals these are tiny little things you know BB size kind of stuff and they uh, they don't have the inflammation reaction you normally expect to find if something a foreign body is incorporated in, in your body on uh, so there is physical evidence. Does it
0: scare you? Does a part of it scare you?
1: Well, I don't like the idea of being under somebody's control, I guess. But on the other hand, nothing aliens have done to us compares what we Earthlings have done to other Earthlings.
0: Or to animals.
1: Oh, well, yes, or to <laughs> animals. We just had a case here of somebody killing almost 100 sled dogs because the season was over and they couldn't feed them. 100 dogs. What kind of nonsense is that? You know, so man does crazy things. You you hear about the torture. So the aliens don't scare me. And I hope that if they pick me up, I'd say, take me to your leader.
0: (laughs) How has your cosmology, your personal cosmology changed from 50 years ago to today?
1: I feel very strongly that we are part of a neighborhood that's chock full of civilizations, many of them more advanced than we are. (laughs) wouldn't take much for that. Uh, And that uh, there are beings who apparently have solved the problems of how to get along with other people. Either you learn to do that or you die because you get destroyed. And so my cosmology looks at a very different picture from this here we are, isolated, and maybe a thousand light years away, there's another civilization, and a thousand in the other direction. i say they're all over the place. I'd love to get into their libraries to find out, you know, what fraction of planetary civilizations get past the stage of having too much technology and not enough sociology, which is where I think we are. If we spent a lot of that money on feeding ourselves and feeding our kids, at treating the diseases, at working out a better way to handle the problems of the planet, uh, we'd be a lot better off. Now, maybe other people have done that. I don't know. Maybe there's something we can learn.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to say today?
1: Just that we're dealing with the primary problem of our time, that is man's place in the universe. That's a consideration of all religions. You know, where do we stand? Uh, who are we? And I think we need to look into the UFO stuff because I think we can learn something that will help my great-grandson grow up in a better world. We can learn about technology. Uh, 30% of the world's food spoils, for example. That's not an efficient use of resources. We can be ready to deal with strangers out there. Maybe we need to learn how to treat the people on this planet, less as strangers and more as fellow earthlings. So I I think it's something to think about and think deeply about, and I think there ought to be college courses. I'm not saying everybody should use my books. I'm saying that we need to learn about the phenomena because it's a big and it's an old neighborhood, and we're just scratching the surface. There's a lot more to do.
0: It's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you, to listen to you, to have you on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, this is part one with Stanton Friedman, the author of Flying Saucers and Science, A Scientist Investigates the Mysteries of UFOs, also the author of a new book called Science Was Wrong, along with Kathleen Martin, and many other books and DVDs. You can find out more about Stanton Friedman by going to stantonfriedman.com. Stanton, thank you so much for provisioning time today. I look forward to reading the new book and bringing you back. Thanks so much. Okay.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure.